Welcome to Vernacular Reality, the VR-focused extension of Language Matters by Diplomatic Language Services. Join me, Blythe Collins, as I explore how a language company can implement virtual reality as a learning tool. Welcome back to Vernacular Reality. We have Doug North Cook with us today. He is program coordinator and professor of immersive media at Chatham University. He is also the lead instructor for the Falling Water Institute's immersive design residency. So welcome, Doug. Welcome back, Sean. And thanks for being here with us today. Thanks, Blythe. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime we have a guest, I think it's good to just go over your background, do a little bit of an intro to you and all that stuff. Yeah. So I started working in immersive technology back in 2013. I got my hands on the first Oculus developer kit. Uh, a friend of mine got one and we started playing around with an early prototype for a game idea that we had. And then got the second developer kit, kept working on that project, started playing around with some prototypes, made our first game, released that. And that was back when there were maybe like 50 or 60 things that existed that you could download and play on any of the room scale headsets back then. And from there, I started working with some companies, consulting on some, some enterprise-grade projects and deployments for virtual reality, consulted with some larger companies, am now on the board of the National Safety Council, advising them on virtual reality for workplace safety training. And in the midst of all of that, I started teaching a course uh, at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, where I, where I now teach full-time, um, where we started teaching a course about five years ago introducing art and design students to virtual reality. And that was originally meant as a very kind of exploratory prototype course that then very quickly escalated into the development of a full undergraduate program focused on immersive experience development. And we are now in the second, we just finished actually our second year of that program, which is a, a Bachelor of Arts in Immersive Media. Uh, which is a, an undergraduate degree program just focused on immersive development. So that's that's the quick sprint through the last several years of my life. Um, oh, I'll also mention in the midst of that, I started teaching out at the Falling Water Institute, um, working with them on some of their design residencies. And then they asked me through a series of conversations with their curator, if I would be interested in starting a new residency focused on designers working in uh, immersive technology. And I said, of course, we have to do that. So we started doing that about four years ago. Been on hiatus this past year, uh, as almost everyone doing anything in person has. Uh, but we're hoping to be back on ground there this fall, if all things go the way that they're currently trending. So we'll see. That's amazing. It's uh, it's quite a quite a lot of work for the last last few years. Yeah, I am impressed. <laughs> I want to hear a little bit more about Falling Water, how that came to be, and how, I guess, kind of your different experiences, because you and Sean can both speak on that from two different viewpoints. Yeah, so we started this, I was co-teaching an architecture residency out at Falling Water, and I had been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of work around adopting and kind of translating architectural theory into the development of immersive applications. So what can we learn from the design of physical spaces as we are designing virtual environments and these immersive experiences trying to take what is now millennia 
of architectural expertise. You can go all the way back to Vitruvius in the third century BC and start digging up arch like written architectural history. So we started in on some of those conversations just like at dinner, me and some of the staff at Falling Water. And then they were like, why don't we do that here? Why don't we use Falling Water as a way to explore that idea, to explore doing that work of translation, of taking a great work of architecture and using it as a way to explore what immersive design can be, what designing experiences can mean, and how, yeah, we've been doing that for a few years now. Yeah, it's like you're kind of breaking it down to the most basic level of design. It's interesting because I know when we were talking about this off, <laughs> off the record, I was so surprised that there was no technology involved either. Yeah, the residency is completely unplugged. Some people still bring some things with them, but we don't really, like in the studio where we're working, we, there's not a projector, there's no television, there's not a speaker system, <laughs> um, there's no internet. And I think some people are pretty, pretty shocked, but I think that's what's very appealing to a lot of people that work so deeply in technology that having the time and the space to step outside of it, to step back, gain some new perspective and, and do some serious thinking around why you're doing the work that you're doing, I think has been really beneficial to a lot of people that have come and joined us. I found out about the program on, uh, on Twitter. I remember seeing the tweet from you announcing it and I think it was because somebody else had retweeted it. I don't think we were following each other at the time. And I had just made an offhand comment that I was jealous of anybody who would get to go. And you reached out directly and encouraged me to apply. That just really amped up my excitement for the whole thing and got to go, got to hang out with some amazing people just to have that time to be away and to discuss matters with like-minded people sort of thing. It was formative, I would say, extremely influential on my process of thinking about how we build uh, software, how we build anything in general, not just immersive software, but anything really. That's good to hear that it's had that sort of impact. I think anytime you are able to pull people out of their day-to-day -day experience and put them with people that are operating at the same level that they are, but that they wouldn't have the chance to have that level of interaction with when you're living in a house with seven other strangers for, for a week in the woods with no internet, there's really nothing to do except have substantive conversations and interactions. And I think that is so much of what the magic of any event like that is, is the, the things that happen in between the time at the event, right? And if you're at a big conference that happens in the hallways, just kind of that interstitial space but those are always very fleeting moments. And I think when you're kind of locked away in the woods for a week, that's most of the moments. And I think there's something pretty magical about that. It was something I had been wanting to do for a long time. When I moved to Philadelphia, or when I moved to DC, I was coming from Philadelphia. I was manager at a community organized hackerspace. We were constantly putting together maker events of all kinds. And then moving to DC, I was moving to live with my fiance. I was not moving for a job. I kept my work. And so I, I went into this very long period of freelance work, the constant hustle that is freelance work and, and trying to think of different things to do and, and getting involved in these different events. And then to come to the Falling Water experience, it was out in the woods talking with people about all the stuff we're going to make. It was quite a thing. 
Yeah. The experience that we've tried to create at Falling Water, in some ways, a mirror of the types of experiences that I hope that people will develop when they're creating virtual and augmented reality applications. So inviting people into a space that I hope is both inspirational and aspirational and hope that some of that makes it out into the world, into real products, because most technologies are just kind of neutral and they have this latent potential that we then imbue our values into. And if your values around these technologies are just like, oh, they're like cool, they're exciting, they're the future in quote in some way, but you don't have any vision beyond that, beyond just the novelty of the technology, then the technology will become something that does not have a positive effect. It will either have a neutral effect or more often than that, a disastrously negative effect on who we are. It was such a powerful metaphor that immediately had um, a lot of implication for me. With regular software, we're just making this little window that people poke at a little bit. But with immersive software, it's the it's we have to design for every single sense that the user has, even for the most mundane thing. Yeah, you know, the most mundane thing in VR has to be respectful of and engage all of the senses, or else it's going to create a terrible experience for the user. And the stakes are very high on what a terrible experience can mean for someone in, in immersive software. If you have a bad day with a smartphone application, you get frustrated, you throw your phone across the room, you crack the screen. You have a bad day in a VR uh, in a VR experience, and the most likely thing to happen is that you get physically ill to your stomach for the rest of the day. You know, worst case scenario is you fall over and trip on you, know, you trip on a chair and fall into a glass table and cut your neck, which has actually happened. We have this huge, huge responsibility in how we design software. And so the architecture metaphor is incredibly deep in that regard. It's not just about making something pretty. It's also about making something that is safe and usable. Yeah. I feel like we're really only just now getting around to a lot of those conversations. Like physical architecture in the world has laws that govern everything about how it can be built, where it can be built, why it can be built. None of the none of that extends into digital space. Like a lot of people think that that is the best thing about the internet. And in a lot of ways, that's true. But in the flip side of that is that it is also the worst thing about the internet and about technology is that it is so unregulated. And when you have something that's so unregulated and so kind of unchecked, but is so deeply connected to like our, our embodied personal, physical, visceral experience, there's a lot more opportunity for for negative experiences, for, for people to have not, not just like physically uncomfortable experiences, but emotionally uncomfortable experiences, especially when you start kind of navigating into the implications for social immersive applications and things like that. It's going to be a while because, uh, because so few people understand these technologies, even at the basic level. So to get anyone who is engaged in any sort of regulatory or, or even just like standards work around this is a long haul. Yeah. I mean, even even things as basic as giving users an avatar, you know, in a, in a social experience is just a, a gigantic uh, field of different issues that you have to consider. There's performance issues. Are you going to let people use whatever 3D model they want? And how? what kind of impact is that going to have on the other users? And then there's social issues of you know, how big are we going to let people make their own avatars? How yeah, Just how much control are we going to let people have because other people have to see this in 
the real world, we have certain standards of expectation. We don't expect you to go walking around without any pants on. There's this whole system of manners that we haven't yet codified within, within the social VR space. You want to give people a safe sense of themselves within an environment. Do you take away control so that uh, people can't abuse that system? And in the process of taking away control, having other people lose their sense of agency over themselves. Just where do you, where do you draw that line? Yeah, I, I, I am afforded the luxury of being able to spend the majority of my time engaging in this exact, these exact conversations because I work in academia and these are the same questions that my students are coming to me with all the time, which is how do we do this responsibly? Why is this so hard? Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's been really exciting to be able to work with students in this space who are engaging with these problems, not necessarily just from a, how are we going to make money doing this question, which is the majority of the questions I get when I'm out doing consulting, but they get, they get to exist in the space that I got to be in like eight or nine years ago when I was just kind of dabbling and playing around with all of this because they don't have to make money for a couple of years. They get to just play and experiment and prototype, which has been really exciting for us, kind of seeing what comes out of that space when you have people who don't have to, you know, earn a living. They get they get to just be creative and, and develop experiences just to do it, which is something that I'm really excited about being able to provide. Well, I, now I want to hear more about teaching because our VR application is designed to teach so you obviously have different, very different students. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's been interesting because I've been, I've been engaging with a lot of groups, especially over the last two years with the work I've been doing with the National Safety Council, getting to hear a lot about how corporations are engaging with virtual reality from a training perspective, specifically around safety training and seeing the pretty unbelievable results that a lot of companies have been getting from, from some of these virtual reality training applications, not just on like efficacy and retention of knowledge, but also the broad employee satisfaction that people are much happier engaging with a 30-minute virtual reality training than they are sitting in a two-hour PowerPoint presentation, which is basically like when you look at like how much information companies are able to distill from a traditional presentation into a very well-developed high-end virtual reality experience, you can see these massive cuts in how much time it takes people to engage with the content while also increasing the amount of information that they retain and how much they enjoy doing it, which means that they might be able to do more of it, right? So, and I think that's, you know, kind of broadly the work that I've been seeing is that you you have this incredible potential for increasing the efficiency, efficacy, and enjoyment of training, which especially around language learning, language learning is notoriously difficult, especially for adults. And everything that you can throw against that problem Every, every tool, every trick, every piece of technology, you kind of need all of it, right? You need some of the good traditional methods and ideally you need some like partnered learning, but also having a really robust immersive application that can put you into a scenario, put you in a dedicated space and give you a lot of contextual tools in a way that's more intellectually, emotionally, 
and like personally stimulating than like swiping an app on your phone is, which is the majority of people, that's how they're learning languages right now, right? They're just like sitting on an app, just kind of swiping around. But when you're doing that, you're not actively engaged. You're passively engaged with an active experience. And when you're actively engaged with an active experience, you have a higher possibility of retaining information and a higher possibility that you might actually enjoy that process. Nobody enjoys swiping around on a smartphone learning something. Yeah, that's why we call it doom scrolling. Yeah. And if I'm doom scrolling to learn French, I'm going to hate learning French and I'm never, and I'm never going to learn it effectively. It doesn't mean that like mobile apps don't have their place. Cause I think mobile apps are a great supplement in the learning process, but so are virtual reality experiences. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly how we feel too about, about the whole process. And I draw a connect, a direct connecting line between going to following water, meeting you, having that amazing time and, uh, and our design process on, on our virtual reality, reality project. When I got here almost, almost two years ago, I sat down with folks and I asked, what do we do? Well, what do we do? What makes DLS great? And that was very easy for people to answer. It was this personalized one-on-one experience that students get. So it became clear, well, let's make that even better. Let's take what we do really well and let's make that even better. This is the environment that we have. Let's do what we can to push it towards the ideals, but not away from our current strengths. And so we ended up with this kind of like a guided tour, a tour guide sort of metaphor of a, a class. Your instructor takes you around uh, an environment and you show off different things and you talk about it in the in the target language. So you're getting to learn the the culture as well as the language at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's what a virtual reality experience is uniquely situated to be able to do is give you the feeling and experience of being in a place and being with another person in a way that a mobile application, a video, a book have a harder time doing. And I think it's really exciting that you are leveraging what I think are the the core strengths of the technology to amplify your pre-existing value proposition. I think that's really exciting. Still trying to figure out how to to fit digital footprints into the app, digital fingerprints and smudges. And for for the listeners, this was a concept uh, that I had come up with in the Falling Water Retreat that we were spending a lot of time in what is essentially a museum. Falling Water is uh, was someone's home and is now a museum. And when you're when you first get there, I feel the museumness of it comes through very strongly, much more strongly than the homeness of it. I had put a lot of thought into what's the disconnect between a space feeling like someplace that is foreign and and is fragile and you're not allowed to touch anything versus a space where you feel comfortable, you feel ownership over it. One of my concepts of that was you get your dirt all over stuff. (laughs) And, uh, And so that was digital footprints and fingerprints smudges. Well, I hope when uh, when you have me back on here again at some point in the in the far future that you will have solved uh, digital footprints and fingerprints, and we can we can have a a lengthy discussion about the hominess of fingerprints. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant I didn't even know that you meant literal digital footprints. I thought that was some sort of VR term at first. I was like, ooh, a digital footprint. <laughs> Okay, so on that note, it has been lovely to talk with you. Thank you for coming on our podcast, Doug. It was great to have you. Oh, anytime. Thanks again. And thank you as always, Sean, for being here. And we will see you on the next episode. Later, taters. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Vernacular Reality. I hope you'll continue the conversation with us by searching Diplomatic Language Services on Facebook and LinkedIn, following us on Instagram at DC Language, or tweeting us at Diplomatic LS. 